This episode is brought to you by KPMG Risk Services. KPMG believes that when you've earned the trust of all your stakeholders, that's when your business has a solid platform to grow. That's the trusted imperative. KPMG Risk Services develop and put in place dynamic risk strategies designed to help your business earn that all-important trust. Go to read.kpmg.us slash trust to learn more. Hey, this is Randy Gage, and you're listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Episode 2 of the Fear, Love, and Creativity Podcast Series, in which we investigate the best way that each of us can get in a state in which we allow our creativity to flow, because I truly believe it is that creative flow that is our most potent power, our most potent superpower as human beings. And so we feature solo episodes with yours truly, but also incredible experts like the person I interview in today's episode. I'm talking about Randy Gage. He is the prosperity guru. Learn more about him at randygage.com. He'll give you a kick in the ass to help you unleash your prosperity. He's a four times New York Times bestselling author. I think he's on book number like 11 or 12. He's a Hall of Fame Hall of Fame keynote speaker. His latest book is Radical Rebirth. It's about kind of re-emerging, reinventing yourself to unleash your prosperity. You know, today's episode may offend the hell out of you. We talk about religion and politics, but as I said in episode one, we may offend you, but hopefully we make you think and get out of that state of fear that is holding you back. Without further ado, here is my interview with Randy Gage. And toward the end of this interview, he says, Kurt, you better release this whole fucking episode unedited and not be afraid if people get offended because he knows we recorded something special. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope we make you think. Hope we don't offend you too bad. Actually, I don't mind if <laughs> if we do. Without further ado, here's my interview with Randy Gage. All right. So, so before we started recording, I was talking about the, the idea of fear, love, and creativity and unleashing your creative flow. And um, I was mentioning, so Randy, when, when we were, when I, so actually, gosh, this is one of the last trips I took before COVID yeah. was that I flew to Fort Lauderdale. I remember seeing a guy in a mask. And at that point it was like, I was like, what's, what's even going on here? Like, it's not even here yet, you know? And I can't even imagine, but I went down there, interviewed, and you started talking to me about, um, and we started talking, I'd read some of your books, but just about, uh, first, I think you talked about, you had been a lay minister in the unity church. But then you talked about Fillmore and, and you've written that he was one of your most, uh, in a list of authors and, and philosophers. And so I started reading Fillmore. I read everything, the big thick book. And then he turned me on to Butterworth and I was reading them and Butterworth's got a book called the creative life and Charles Fillmore. I was reading it. I started in February after we met and I was reading it all as we were going into COVID era. And it's like, did he write this for February and March? And he talks about the collective consciousness willing into, and I'm, listen, you had the virus. Uh, I've probably had the virus. I didn't even know it, but he talks about willing sickness into society and the collective consciousness of fear. And Butterworth talks about the rise and fall of stock markets is not a reality. It's a reality that we all create based on our thoughts, which is true. I mean, you look at this. I mean, Elon well, Musk. The stock market is just a meme. It, it's a yeah. virus. 
which yeah. we choose to accept. And we say, like today, uh, you know, I've got emails from my friend, our Clover stock is up 25% today. It's a healthcare company that we both invested in because they're kind of forward thinking, you know, but it's up like, it's, it's almost like a Wall Street bets kind of scenario, just yeah. somebody's feeding something on a blog somewhere and it's spiking up and like crazy. And it's like, it's all, it's monopoly money. It's just memes that we say, oh yes, the, you know, the U.S. dollar is worth, because U.S. dollar is a meme, right? Yeah. There is no gold standard since 71 or 72 when Nixon took it off the gold standard. So we say the government says it's worth this much. And as long as we accept it, that's true. <laughs> but if we don't accept it, it's not true. And it's true of everything in the stock market, all that stuff. It's just conventional beliefs that we choose to participate in. We've talked about it on, on my past podcast and you've written about it in several books. Um, can you define for everyone listening who thinks a meme is just a funny picture of Trump or Biden or something on, or, or GIF or GIF, I don't know how you pronounce it. Can you describe kind of the history of the meme and how you write about it and how you speak about it? Yes. So the term meme is to signify from the field of mimetics, which was introduced by uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. And he created the word meme because he felt it would have the same root structure as gene. And so we have genes that influence our development through DNA, right? And then he say, we have memes which influence our development, our beliefs, our actions through mind. A meme is actually a mind virus that parasitizes the host and causes us to replicate the virus. So if you hear the baby shark theme song, if you've got children like you do, you probably, oh my God, I got this earworm and now you hum it in an elevator somewhere. And the guy in the elevator is like, oh, thanks. Now that's going to be in my head all day. That's a meme. If we see if Obama says, yes, we can, that's a meme. When, Mike, when Nike says, just do it, that's a meme. It parasitizes the host and causes us to replicate the virus. So it's just like you're, the hard drive on your computer gets a virus, your subconscious mind gets a mind virus, which we call a meme. And I've, I've, I've read some uh, books uh, or listened to some podcasts. Uh, Dr. Um, uh, Bruce Lipton writes yeah. about programming. And he really stresses, and he said that Jesuits had it right. Give me a child until he's seven and I will show you the man. Or give me a boy until he's seven, I will show you the man. And talks about one through seven having that software to get programmed with memes. Do you, do you, uh, do you buy into that? Behind me on that wall, you see the cover of my last book, Radical Rebirth. So as you know, cause you've read it, I divide the foundational beliefs in our lives into six main critical core categories, meaning sex and sexuality, God and religion, work and career, marriage and relationships, health and wellness, and I would submit all of, I say before eight or 10 years old, but you could easily make the argument in all of those that you, you develop that core belief by seven, 
and I could I, I wouldn't dispute uh, Dr. Lipton at all because your parents one cheated on each other or they were abusive or they your core belief about marriage and relationship anchored at seven years old. If you were raised in Sunday school in a Catholic family, your beliefs, God and religion anchored by seven years old, right? So you could take all of them and say, yeah. And that's the thing that shocks people is they, when I'm working with them, they're saying, you're telling me I blew up my marriage or I blew up my career because of a belief I developed when I was five or six or seven. And the answer is yes, that's exactly what happened. It's one thing I've realized, um, and I want to touch, I'd like to touch on the religion piece as well, especially, um, is, is, is the fear piece. You know, we decided over the last year that we didn't want to subject our kids to a programming of fear. You know, we don't shelter them, but we don't allow them to marinate in the panic porn and the fear porn and all that. Right. And so we've gone places where, listen, we're going to go out on the lake. We're going to have fun. We're going to do things. I'm, I grew up with a, a terrible fear of heights. My dad was scared of heights and would talk about it. Right. So the programming, so we let our kids climb on rocks and these things, and I'm about to have a coronary, right? I'm, I'm, I'm worried. Yeah. But one of the things my wife heard was don't say, don't just repeat over and over again, be careful, be careful, be careful. It will program and say something like pay attention. And so I try to do that. But one thing came to my, uh, my attention when I posted a picture of my and my, I was on the phone with my mom and she said, just be careful. I don't want those boys. I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want, that was her whole thing. And it dawned on me. I probably heard that. There's no probably. There's no problem. (laughs) To this day, okay, I've told this story on one of my podcasts or YouTube, whatever. I was like 50 or 55, I don't know, but not young. 50 or 55, my mother sent me a candle for my birthday, one of those ever burn candles or whatever. So some other stuff, some, you know, cookies in the care package. And so I'm, I call her that weekend to say thank you. And, and right before I hang up, she says, whatever you do, don't burn down the house. Right. And I'm thinking, I'm 50 or 55. <laughs> I'm talking to my mother and she gives me a can. She's still saying, don't burn down the house. But that's, Of course she did, because my mother, just like your mother, just like 99.99999% of all the mothers and grandmothers of the people who are listening to the sound of our voices right now, have worst case thermonuclear meltdown scenario syndrome. (laughs) If they, you know, if you you know, scuff your toe as you're walking. She, my mom is going to say, careful, you're going to fall down and break your neck. You know, if you don't run with scissors, you're going to put an eye out. Don't poke out. You're lucky you didn't get your eye poked out. It's, that's it. Those are mind viruses. And absolutely, we get them from our parents. You know, it, I think it's Geico has just got to be the most brilliant commercial campaign now about this guy who portrays a doctor, a psychologist who helps people not become their parents. Yes. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's just brilliant because it's, and everyone can get that humor because everyone can relate to that because that's exactly what happens. We become our parents 
99% of the time, unless we're, you know, you, you do the work that I'm talking about in that radical rebirth book, where you're actually going and saying, okay, what are my core foundational beliefs about this topic or subject? How did I get them? When did I get them? Who did I get them from? And it's just, it's shocking when you do it. When it comes to the fear mind virus, much has been written about, you know, we live in a fear-based culture, right? In terms of kids can't play anymore. Swimming pools are closed. There's a killer around every corner. You know, there's these polls showing everyone thinks it's the most violent time in history. It's not, but you see every shooting within five minutes. You know, um, and, and wars, I mean, World War II, you know, all these things and, and violence is down and all these things. Do you think that it it's it's just a case of us saying it's worse than ever? Or do you think it has gotten worse fueled by the the I mean, we were texting, you know, Richard Dawkins. We tweeted a couple of days ago about it's funny that Richard Dawkins talks about the meme. And meanwhile, he tweets something about he didn't like Kafka's metamorphosis. And talk about a meme, it's like there's a thousand comments that all say the same thing. And I'm willing to bet that 80% of those people don't even know who Kafka is. They just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Do you think social media has fueled the fear mind virus that, that we deal with? Or has it always kind of been there and we, we just notice it more? Or, you know, what, what social media and traditional media have done, both of them, they both need outrage and fear as their business model. CNN doesn't work without fear and outrage. It's just not a profitable business. Facebook doesn't work without fear and outrage. It's not a profitable business. But when you add fear and outrage, they're multi-billion dollar businesses. They're some of the most lucrative businesses in the world because those platforms weaponize the fear weaponize the outrage. So a um, little homework for you guys listening to the podcast. If you go to my blog, randygage.com, search for the, the, the article, don't be a virtual, virtue signaler, virtue, V-I-R-T-U-E. Because we have this epidemic now of people. This is what you saw with Dawkins the other day. You, you know, somebody says or does something and then a Twitter mob is created to show everybody who follows them how virtuous they are because you know Kamala Harris the vice president here in the state sent out a tweet uh, on Friday before Memorial Day enjoy the long weekend oh yeah, I saw that. God, it was a Twitter mob right and of course then of course so all of the Trumpster virtual signalers are just, we're going crazy with that. So then all the, the, the liberals, they just, there's always a tweet with Trump, right? So they go and search his Twitter feed and he's got a Trump that he sent on Memorial Day weekend, you know, which was basically a campaign commercial. Oh, yeah. we're going to Memorial Day and the economy's up and more jobs and 4.2% unemployment. And, you know, it was basically a reelection commercial. And, so, of course, they all show their virtue, like your person is less virtuous than my person. And that was the weekend I wrote this, this started to write the, the article you and I were talking about before we started recording. 
I was home visiting my mother and uh, her sister, who is 80 and dying of cancer, and has chosen, I don't want any chemo, just I'm going to last what I last. So that was my last chance to say goodbye to her. And it was just magical. So I had this one, you know, we were having a cookout on the, the Sunday and she's been in her, you know, my aunt has been in her home for weeks. It doesn't eat anything, just drinks Coca-Cola and takes pills, you know, prescriptions. And the doctor has told us she'd be long gone already. And she's just, and I, so I told her, listen, I'm going to come over tomorrow and I'm going to pick you up. And, you know, she weighs like 60 pounds. She's emaciated, you know. I'm like, I will just pick you up. I will carry you to the car. And I'll carry you from the car to the house where we get there. You're going to and outside and we're going to have the cookout. And just get some sunshine and some fresh air. And so she's like, oh, I love that idea. So I take her out there. She eats Italian sausage, key lime pie, ice cream, brownies, cookies, <laughs> every garbage. And this is a woman who hasn't eaten in three weeks. And she was, you know, putting it down like a high school football team. It was just so wonderful. And then I, you know, so I go back to the hotel afterward. I've had this magical day with her and I, you know, open up my social media feed and it's all the Kamala Trump stuff about Memorial Day weekend. And I'm like, do you guys really think this shit is important? Yeah, Do you right. really think this is what your life is all about? You know? So if, for you guys listening, if you want to read the post I wrote on that, it's called The Last Goodbye or Your Last Goodbye. Because um, it's like, so uh, long, long answer to, but I think the question you raise is such a fascinating one is, it weaponizes the fear and the outrage because before you just told your neighbor about it over the fence or you told three people about it at the water cooler at work. Now you've got 453 people who follow you on Facebook. So when you make your snarky, clever post, you're going to get instant feedback. And it's, it's Pavlov's dogs all, all over again. Just yeah. the follows and the, the hearts and the likes and the share are training people to do more of it. And so you have these professional virtue signalers who spend five hours a day. Well, you know, they might post five times on Facebook in a single day. Some shaming post about because if you scroll, you know, if you follow the right fear and outraged accounts, you can see something to outrage you every hour. And then you can retweet it out and, you know, talk about how evil those people are and everybody's frothing at the mouth. And it's so what the traditional media and the social media is they've weaponized that because they allow us to project it to such a bigger audience so much quicker. And the interesting thing is, is, you know, critical thinking and creative thinking, and I think the two are, are, are related or the same, I, depending you know, on how you want to look at it, does not mean that John and Jane are going to come up to the same opinion or whatever, right? Whether it's about health, whether it's about politics, whether it's something. Yeah, but critical, they come to that thinking, critical thinking probably means they don't. Right. 
Yeah, and it doesn't mean, and they can come up with different opinions on anything, but but that doesn't mean they didn't arrive at it critically, right? right? It's like, if you ask why, well, because I saw it on Facebook. Well, that that's one thing. You know, there's some things that it's kind of funny. Uh, a year ago, you know, there's a joke I heard and it's like, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? Well, I'll give it about six to nine months, you know? And there are some things, you know, I worked in government and there were, you know, when people bring up conspiracy theories, my standard answer is, listen, I worked in government at the county level, the state level, and the federal level, and no one is smart enough in there to actually carry out most of these conspiracy theories. Um, and so that's usually my take is just step back, step back. Although it's been interesting over the last year, seeing some things that were conspiracy theories six years, six months ago and something that it's like, oh, that's interesting. They're putting it into law, but you can, I think the key is perhaps stepping back, taking a deep breath and being a little bit detached rather than knee jerky. And, 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 and perhaps that's that, that weaponization of, I need to have an opinion on this right now versus I'm kind of seeing, wait, how this plays out. Like I, I remember the first uh, in March, you know, I told my wife, I said, all right, they'll lock down in Washington and Oregon, but we were in South Carolina at the time. I said, ain't no way they're shutting down the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to see Sebastian Maniscalco comedian. We, we saw him March 6th. And we were talking about, it. I'm like, yeah, what is this COVID thing? Like, what, like, I don't even know what it is, but they're not going to shut down the economy. Six days later, they shut down South Carolina. And so I didn't agree with it then, but I'm thinking, wow, some, like somebody's scared of something here, right? And I started watching TV and I started getting into it. And I remember my morning meditation routine. I was panicked specifically about one of our kids, but like, I'm never going to see my parents again. My kids are going to like, we're not leaving. I remember I'm not going to the, the chiropractor never ended. He was, he was, I didn't go out. I remember the first time I went to the chiropractor. I mean, you, you know, back, what back problems are like, it was out. And I was like, I, I don't care. I, I'll get COVID. I got to go get this taken care of. I came home. I took off my clothes right away and didn't touch anything. It was like I had been in a nuclear fallout. Right. And so the fear got to me. And after a while, it's like, I stepped back, started looking at data, started looking at things, not paying attention to. Uh, the, the news, you know, you wrote about it, but that you, you maybe wrote about your case, maybe in May. I, I, I remember you, you came out and wrote about it or something. It's like, okay, all right, that makes sense. And, and this and that, but even in the end, you and I could have different opinions on vaccines or you and I could have different opinions on anything, but we arrive at them differently. Is the, is the difference how you arrive at those opinions? Is that, I guess this is my long way, way of asking, is that the difference? You arrive at an opinion, you and I could arrive at a different opinion about something, but is it, is it, is the difference how we arrive there? Uh, well, I think the real nexus of the question you're getting to is, yes, two people can both have critical practice, critical thinking processes and come up with different beliefs, right? I can have a critical thinking process about abortion uh, should be acceptable or not acceptable and come to a thing and someone else can have a critical thinking and come to the other side of whichever one I chose, right? Because everybody's going to be influenced by their mind viruses. What are the religions believe about God, death, birth, health, babies, 
gestate, gestation development of the fetus, right? There's what we call facts, you know, they're, they're, that's the problem you see with the whole COVID thing is everybody will follow the science. If they would follow the science, no, the, there is no such thing as, as proven science. The entire premise of science is you create a theory and then you try to disprove it. Yeah. And when you can't disprove it, that's what we would call accepted science for the moment until somebody else creates a new hypothesis and is able to discredit what we thought was true, right? So we thought COVID was a surface threat and everything was sterilized and everybody's running around with gloves. And then after, which is okay because we didn't know, right? right. It was a virus that never existed in the world before. It made the jump, you know, or made, it didn't exist in the human. We were quarantining Amazon packages for like 48 hours. Yes. At one point. Everybody, Our family, right? you know. <laughs> Anybody sensible was, right? I think. Because um, I was listening to people like Balaji and, you know, PhD molecular biologists, epidemiologists, people who really said, no, this is something, this is not the flu. There are people dropping dead on the street in Wuhan, 40 year old men, 50 year old women dropping dead on the street. They are, um, you know, soldering doors shut. They are locking people in apartment buildings and welding the doors shut and air dropping in food. This is not, you know, this could be the one we need to take this seriously, right? So that was the prudent thing to do. That was the accepted science thing to do. And we said, so it could be a surface. What happened as it played out? We found, well, you know, it's actually not really a surface threat. It's a, uh, you know, airborne threat. And so it made sense. Hey, everybody should wear masks because masks are usually effective for airborne viruses. Now there's a tremendous amount of research showing that masks really didn't have any beneficial effect during all of this time. Yet, and now the CDC has said, well, you know, the truth is people who are vaccinated, um, there's really no reason for them to wear a mask indoors or outdoors, right? But we still have a mask mandate on planes and airports as we're talking about this, right? Yeah. And the people who say, we're following the science. No, we're not following the science. Science is just another meme like anything else, right? It's our best case scenario. So our job as critical thinkers is to, what you're talking about really is self-awareness. Hmm. Do you have the self-awareness to be able to go up to 30,000 feet and look down on your life from the altitude and say, okay, let me objectively look, you know, when I see that Facebook post and I'm so pissed off, why am I so pissed off? What is the belief I have that it's causing that? That person who's so irritating to me, that uncle that when I see them at Thanksgiving and we just fight like cats, you know, what is it about that person? What do they have that I'm afraid of in myself that is triggering me to do that? That's that's like critical thinking to the highest power when you can take a rational, logical thought process like that and apply it to your own beliefs and your own behaviors without getting clouded by the emotion. 
And, you know, the number, the amount of people who are able to do that is in a percent that you could count on one hand and the fingers on one hand, you know, yeah. so that's really the issue that we're dealing with here is there, people are not able to do critical thinking. Even, I mean, if you take somebody like um, Sidney Powell or that uh, Lynn Wood, they're both high priced, experienced attorneys who have operated in the grown-up world, very successful, prestigious, well-educated, highly intelligent, and they believe that Trump is going to be reinstated in August, that there's some, right? It's a total QAnon conspiracy theory, right? But their emotions don't allow their intellect to process that. Yeah. And, it's, you know, the woke liberals, I mean, it's just, they are so desperate to show how woke they are that they're just trolling through Twitter or Facebook every day to look for some, you know, thing that, you know, at some point you have to just say, well, you know, wait a minute, uh, do I really, you know, how, how can I stop letting people program me like a puppet on strings? And there's not a lot of people able to do that. And, you know, maybe part of it, too, is is these, you know, I was thinking last night in terms of um, the end of nuance, the death of nuance in our society. And, and uh, you know, the, the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire last night tweeted something out about uh, legalizing child labor. Now, the way they put it was inartful. Um, but people including Gary Johnson, libertarian, you know, presidential candidate, that's not very libertarian. And there was no nuance. And it's uh -huh. like, well, does it depend? Like my daughter's 15. Restaurants and coffee shops can't find anyone to work right now. There is a labor shortage. Now we can debate why and, and all that, but there is a labor shortage. My daughter is dying to go work at a coffee shop. They keep telling her you can't. You got to be 16, according to the law. Now, I think there's one or two who said, well, if the parent signs off, et cetera, right? There's nuance there. If a child wants to work at fifth, at a coffee shop versus, you know, a child working in the coal mines, right? Okay. So, but people see child labor bad and there's, there's a death of nuance. And so maybe that contributes to, you know, uh, on both sides, right? No one likes to be proven wrong. And in a, and in a society of gotcha, when politicians... When, whenever and all the data show that, you know, they repealed mass mandates in Texas and it went down or like you said, on planes, if a politician goes back, there's no nuance. Right. And then they're attacked of, well, you were wrong this whole time. And it works both ways. Right. It, it, it works both ways in terms of, you know, um, and I was just thinking about that last night. Just there's no nuance anymore on yeah. what the word for me, the word is discernment. There's no yeah. discernment there. People are not able to discern distinctions. And in the Radical Rebirth book, I, I, one of the most controversial chapters is I, I tell people that every time you assign a label to yourself, you're volunteering for a lobotomy. <laughs> because when you assign a label for yourself, whether it's Trumpster, Republican, Democrat, liberal, woke liberal, Christian, Buddhist, conservationist, axe murderer, any label. 
you're creating an identity. And for 99 plus percent of the people, you will feel the need to defend that identity. Mm-hmm. And so once you have that knee-jerk defense mechanism in place, that's when the discernment shuts off. And I say it's it's like a voluntary lobotomy because even though even though you know Sidney Powell has the brain cells to access the, the thinking process to say, no, there's not uh, you know, the last one I heard in in uh, Arizona was there was bamboo on the ballots because they came from China, right? <laughs> you know. Somebody like her has the intellectual capacity to filter that out, but she's turned it off involuntarily because she has identified herself as a champion to overturn the election because she believes the election was stolen. So it's no different. You and I watch the you know baseball game, and if you're rooting for the Red Sox and I'm rooting for the Yankees and there's a bang-bang play at first base, you will clearly see he was safe, and I will clearly see he is out because we have confirmation bias that very few people are able to filter that out. It's uh... – when you talk about the, uh, I just I was looking back through your book through Radical Rebirth, and and I turned right to the page about identity, and it was interesting because I'm reading a book called The Theory of Chaos. It's written in the mid '90s. I went to a used bookstore here. I saw it. Or, I'm sorry, not the Theory of Chaos, the Tao, the Tao of Chaos. So it mixes a little bit Taoism with chaos theory. It's by Stephen Walensky. And I picked it up and he talks about identity and these illusions we create. It's like, a, it's like our own movie that we create about who we are depending yeah. based on all those things. And that fear, uh, that chaos really comes in and causes just immense fear if we think our identity in any way, shape or form is going to be threatened or disappear. Yeah. And so, you know, over the last year, what I found was I identify with going to this restaurant every Friday and doing that. And I identified with it. And so when you took it away from me, now I can still disagree with them taking it away, but it created such chaos yeah. and a mental anguish yeah. that one of the reasons we went on the road is to completely obliterate identity. And do it. Now we went crazy. We're a little crazy, but, um, but it's interesting because I, I turned to that. You said that I'm reading that book about that identity and we grasp, right? It's, it's, I'm an identity and uh, you know, it, it's um, you'll fight tooth and nail. Are you watching sweet tooth by the way on Netflix? No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh my gosh. I know you're a movie guy and, and show guy. I see you tweet all the time. Have you watched this? It's produced by Robert Downey Jr. And his wife. It's based on a DC comic from, 2009 the everyone on the movie claims no no no, the whole thing was written in 2019 before the pandemic you gotta be shitting me there's no way i mean it's about a virus it's about a pandemic Uh it's about lockdowns they show people in masks uh irrationally having masks they show thermometer checks on the head um if you they, they they end up it's 10 years afterward if you're if you're in a nice little like there's a, a neighborhood that's kind of like Truman Show-esque, but it's quarantined. It's a very nice neighborhood, but then they show people are riding horses and there's a thing around it. If they find out you get a shaky finger, if you have it, they wrap you up in cellophane and 
burn you in your house? I mean, so it shows the human depravity of that happens according to fear and self-preservation, right? To protect yeah. your identity. And that's the whole theme of it. And it's a very interesting movie. Like, is this really an anti-lockdown, anti-mask movie, but insidiously so, but they're claiming, no, 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 the whole thing, the movie was done before. There's no way that it was done before the pandemic. Right. But but, uh, of course movie. it was because... Those, I mean, you'll find that in the bubonic plague and, and the Spanish influenza thing in 17 or 18. Yeah. There is a survival fear that kicks in and causes people to do really, I mean, just think about the Japanese internment camps in World yeah. War II here in the United States. I mean, could you imagine that happening today? But back then... Everybody accepted it. There was 250 million Americans who thought nothing of it, who just thought, well, yeah, I mean, they do have Japanese ancestry and Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and they killed our guys and we better round those people up and put them in camps and watch them. I mean, so you had doctors and lawyers and scientists and, you know, mothers and fathers and children. They were just rounded up like criminals and because that's what happens with that survival instinct. And it's the thing people, and again, here's where discernment come in, right? It makes sense if there's six of us on a lifeboat and we got off the Titanic and there's six of us and there is one canteen of water, it makes sense to say we will ration this water because we don't know when, when help is coming. There's six of us, we need to survive. So there are cases where it's prudent for the government to do that. You know, a health emergency like a COVID or typhoid or whatever that they may, you might really say, I, I want the government to have the power to place a quarantine or to force someone who is a, a open transmitter of a, of a deadly disease into a quarantine until they can be mitigated or vaccinated or the disease passes or it's no longer infectious, right? But you got to have the discernment to say, yeah, but can we just have, you know, the, the, the governor here in Florida just, there was a cruise ship company, I don't remember which one, maybe Royal Caribbean that wants to start cruises here again. And so they were going to, um, have the first cruise that, that vaccinated people only can go on this cruise. And so he signed a law that makes that illegal, that they cannot check people that they've been vaccinated. So my friends, you know, all my uh, conservative friends were like, hey, yeah, DeSantis did a great job. You know, he's not allowing them to discriminate. And I'm like, well, you know, as a guy who, who really kind of believes in libertarian principles, I look at that and I say, well, if I'm a shareholder in Royal Caribbean, which, or any of the cruise companies, which are all bankrupt or teetering on bankruptcy, and they decide, you know, the only way for us to be viable and operate is if we say we're going to offer cruises to people who only are vaccinated. I don't want a governor to be able to change their policy because that's a private business on private property and if they say yeah. we only want to you know you may that may bankrupt the country so just before you get all excited tweeting how happy you are with 
DeSantis, you claim to be libertarian and believe in freedom and private property. So, but again, where's the answer? The answer is discernment, right? Because sometimes we will say, no, the government has to take private property because we've got to build a canal, you know, the Suez Canal, or we've got to build a bridge or, um, you know, something for the greater good. So you gotta, you got to live by principles, but you've got to have the discernment and the critical thinking to realize, hey, some of these things, there are no perfect mm. outcomes. We're going to have to compromise some. So like you and I, we're both lean, very libertarian, private property, freedom, liberty, right? But there may be cases where you say, wow, no, I, you know, um, the guy next door to me is there's a family of 11 there and they all have Ebola virus and they right. keep running out in the yard and want to play with my kids. I need the government to yeah, do right, something yeah. or I'm going to take out my shotgun and I'm going to kill them all. Right. You know, there's discernment. You yeah, know? we have that discussion here in terms of all right, it's easy for us to say things and we oppose government actions right now. We're all in great health. You know, where we're, there are certain things we have no pre-existing conditions, you know, looking at the whatever. And people may argue, oh, well, you know, whatever. That's our, we've, we've decided that. But I said to my wife, I said, what if it was like the virus from the movie I Am Legend? You know, what if, and, and it's discernment. And, and, and I think backing yourself into a box, like right now, we're not getting vaccinated. And that's our choice. I love everyone who does. I, I don't, if there was a different scenario, like I was reading about uh, the 1977 Russian flu outbreak, which by the way, if you ever want to look at something, Google uh, Wikipedia it. Years later, they thought it was a lab leak from the Soviets. And it's like, wow, that's interesting. You know, but that was the morbidity rate or the, the, the fatality. It was all, you know, this is what, 82 is the average, right? Unless you have pre-existing conditions and all that. And mm-hmm. this was 26 years and under. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine the difference in whatever? And, and I said, how would we react differently? You know, it's, it's, if I, if we back ourselves into it and all our, and our kids were most likely to die, would that be different? You know, and of well, course it would. would. Yeah. You, know? you have to think of that. I mean, like my condo, they put copper on all the door handles, the elevator buttons, because copper, you know, uh, coronavirus can't be conducted on copper. Then they propped open all the doors for the trash rooms, the elevator lobbies, everything, so nobody had to even open. I love that. I hate it. I'm a neat, clean guy. I don't like walking by the trash room with the door open or whatever. But for this, I said, you know what? I, yeah. I, I'm okay with it. Right. You have to have that critical thinking, too, because, you know, at the and I and I'm not one of these people, the revisionists who now let's go attack everything Fauci said or everything Trump said or no, everybody was doing the best they could with what they had to work with. And so it made sense to think, well, our masks and answer our vaccines and answer our, you know, surface disinfections and answer. I mean, the, we still don't know. Like, you know, I've got a friend texting me, listen, you know, I have natural immunity. I don't need a vaccination. I have less than 1% chance of, and I'm like, that's an interesting theory. 
it's a plausible theory, but it's a theory. Right. You don't know, do you have natural? Because he, he's making the case, my natural immunity is stronger and longer than vaccine immunity. And that may be true. It may not be true. Right. It's just a theory, right? So, just, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't, you know, and it's that way, I think, with a lot of things. I mean, there are people who think I disagree with people about cholesterol drugs. I disagree with people about. Well, and uh, you have a lot of research to show they're muscle wasters. They're very dangerous, horrible side effects. I and, say, and, and yeah. I take a statin drug. I take the smallest possible amount I can, but. I'm HIV positive since 2006, and being HIV positive, I'm much more uh, susceptible to cholesterol and its side effects. And it, it ha you know, it's, uh, you know, shows for most people who are. And I'm like, I hate that drug, but you know, I kind of like being alive, and this might give me a better shot to stay alive. So I take it. And but people have to people have to understand. You talk about identity. It's like, I don't want to do, I don't do something. I'm not going to identify by being something about a drug or, or a political party or something. One, one thing I want to ask you is you mentioned confirmation bias and confirmation bias. And I catch myself doing it all the time, certainly, you know, um, but also, and, and sometimes my confirmation bias I've found over the last year can be from a sense of hope. Of, of well, maybe that's the best case scenario. So, um, but when you when you pair it with discernment, so early on, there were people who, and even now, when it comes to data and on some of the things you mentioned, it's like I don't understand what they're saying here. And there's a graph here that that your own government that your the people you work for are putting out that is different than what you're saying. You know, but early on, there were some epidemiologists and even statisticians. So uh, John Ioannidis at Stanford University, who was running the numbers and saying, I think we should yield a little bit and just think. I'm not saying this isn't bad, but I'm looking at the numbers on the print on the uh, diamond princess and looking at this. And I think there's an answer other than full lockdown. Like maybe we can segment where we could do certain things, right? He was, so, so I found myself from a personal thing, looking at it and I'm like, being drawn toward his data because I wanted to believe it, right? Because right. it was good right. news. Absolutely. But then I saw people just openly, viciously attacking this guy. I mean, this guy, talk about one of the leading epidemiologists in the world, right? Mm -hmm. But it didn't confirm their bias. But then I'm reading and I'm like, well, am I following it? Because he's confirming my bias. Mm -hmm. So in a world like that, where there's so much information and you have that confirmation bias, how do you, how do you discern? Because in, in a world where experts, and we've had this discussion, I mean, I was in DC and we bought and sold experts all the time. How do you discern in a world where experts have their own bias and in a world where early on some people are over here and some people are over here and you this guy's got a PhD and this woman's got a PhD. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a difficult thing. Here's what I do. One, I, I know, I mean, I'm an expert in human behavior an expert because I was an addict 
and an alcoholic. And when you become an addict and an alcoholic, you know, you learn how to manipulate people at a level a PhD psychologist could only dream of. You can act at a level that Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep can only dream of, right? So I've been in the deep underbelly of the beast. I know human behavior, right? As I say in the book, if you, you know, if I tell you, listen, if we're talking about human behavior, you know, I was doing drug deals in Liberty City and National City and Overtown where you, you know the behavior of that other person or you go out of there in a body bag, right? So it's survival of the fittest, you know, you make it up the evolutionary chain. That was my formative stuff, right? So I joke in the book that, if you know, if you've got a choice of three double-blind studies conducted by Harvard, Yale, and Stanford by PhD psychologists or my gut, you better bet the rent on my gut because I know fucking human behavior, right? So I know that and I know how it impacts me and I know how it impacts the experts. So I... I listen to both sides. You know, if you look at my Twitter feed and who I follow, you know, people are like, wow, I see you follow Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. You must be. I said, well, do you notice that I also follow ba 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 and I list 15 Republicans, right, or five, 15 libertarians, and you know what I mean? So yeah. I had literally yesterday, I was texting my friend, okay, hey, Dr. Shah is saying that it's not true that national natural immunity lasts longer than vaccine immunity. What do you think of these? Right. So I'm getting from both sides, and then I'm also filtering it out. Like, okay, what is the vested interest of this person, and what is the confirmational bias of this person? Right. So when I'm list, like right now, I'm in this deep, deep, deep dive into the blockchain. Cryptocurrencies, uh, DeFi, DAOs, and NFTs. Because I think this is the most important development in human history for the next 20 or 25 years. It's going to impact all areas of our society more. So, uh, you know, and so at this point, by spending an hour or two a day on it for a long time, I know more about it than 98% of the world. Right. Which means I'm just smart enough to be dangerous. Because right? <laughs> the 2% who know more than me know so much more at such a deeper level that they could, you know, because I'm not a programmer. I'm always looking at everything from the human behavior angle. Like, okay, why is somebody buying a crypto punk for $8 million at whatever auction house? You know, why are people buying Gary V's tokens. Why are people, you know, I'm looking at all of that, the NBA top shot NFTs and all of that. I'm just looking at the human behavior angle. But, and so I'm listening to the every podcast, reading deep dive stuff, you know, white papers on programming. And I'm not a programmer, right? But I also look at, okay, so yeah, he's talking about NFTs and he's a trader in the NFT market. So he does have a confirmation bias toward that. Oh, he says Ethereum is better than Bitcoin. Well, but he buys NFTs and they're built on the Ethereum chain. So he's going to be biased for that. 
Oh, he says Bitcoin is better, but he's already admitted he's got 95% of his portfolio in Bitcoin. So he's conflicted, right? So I'm just, that's where the discernment come in is you got to filter through all that stuff. And then again, there's no facts. There's no science. There's okay. Based on the evidence I have, I've put out this hypothesis. I've tried to disprove it. And this is where it's taken me. And so that's like, so I've been working on, um, uh, that's going to be my next blog. It's going to be on web 3.0 and all of these challenges and opportunities we're going to face with DAOs and NFTs and cryptocurrency. Mm. And I'm trying to look at it from the prosperity standpoint, right? Because again, it's how do you filter it? What is the, the, the prism that you're looking at? Because if you own Dogecoin and you bought it at four cents and you've got someone who wants to buy it at $50, well, you're a big proponent of Dogecoin. <laughs> right. I look at it and I say, what is the problem it solves? There is none. What is the value it adds? There is none. So this is anti-prosperity. This is just gambling. This is no different than going to Wins Las Vegas and putting money on the, uh, you know, the blackjack uh, yeah. table, right? So you've got to think about that. So I'm trying to look at all this stuff from, okay, but where is the prosperity going to be created? Where is there actual, because there's tremendous value with the blockchain. There's tremendous value with cryptocurrency. Our business, you and I as speakers, we're going to love NFTs because they're going to allow the smart contracts and they're going to allow royalty. They're not there yet, but they're getting there. So value is being created. Um, and by the way, I could make the same argument, and that's one of the things I was writing in that blog today, right? If we say, okay, let's take all the arguments against cryptocurrency. It's just a meme. It's made up. There's nothing to really support the value of it. Uh, could be used by criminals. Only guilty people would want to have privacy. Um, children or unsuspecting people may be victimized by it. There could be pyramids in there. That's all true. And that's all true for the U.S. dollar. Right. And right. The, the pound and the euro and the yen and centralized finance and banks and all of that, right? Yeah. So now you have to say, oh, okay, so now I need to be a little more discerning. It is true. And then we could say, no, the truth is the regulators, most of them don't understand crypto. They're always going to be behind the criminals. So there is a bigger chance of getting victimized in crypto probably than the U.S. dollar. Dogecoin was started as a joke. It's a literal joke, right? So, but Elon Musk, who's obviously the 800 pound gorilla in the space, you know, he put out a tweet and said, well, you know, if they speed it up by 10 times, if they increase the inventory by 10 times, if they lower the cost by 100 times, this could turn into a viable crypto coin. Um, and I say, well, what has a better chance that the U.S. government is going to balance the budget? and be physically sound or that the developer community around Dogecoin will make Dogecoin a legitimate currency. And I'd have to bet on the Dogecoin people, right? You know, right. 
So you have to think of it that way that, you know, wow, there, there, there is, you got to really double click on this stuff. You got to be discerning. And then, and then I think about, well, of course, but Elon is a little, Elon's biased because he was accepting Bitcoin. He bought uh, cryptos. He's got his part of it in his Tesla or his, you know, personal portfolio. So he's got a confirmation bias. And um, But he's also a really brilliant man, one of the most brilliant people on earth. So you got to filter all that stuff in. Are you okay on time, by the way? I am, yeah. I am. So I'd like, you, you talked about the weaponization of uh, fear and outrage. One thing that I've been using, and if I stole it from you, I'll, I'll pay you the royalties. Um, but, uh, maybe this I is where it. we need NFTs for the royalties. There you go. Is, uh, the weaponization of guilt and the whole guilt piece, you know, um, it, it's, and, and when we started, I talked about reading your prosperity series and, and having our chat and then going into Fillmore and going to Butterworth. And, and the more I go, it's it's amazing and looking even even something as simple as i mean you got me you know i went over and started reading the aramaic version of the bible um i i started getting into the uh gosh i'm gonna sound like an idiot but the 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 hidden uh, uh books of the bible what is it the hag namarati or the nag hammurati uh i i think i pronounced it wrong but and you go into these and they they have completely different translations, right? And, and you've talked about the, the, the definition of sin. It's not you're a bad person and going to burn a house that you're missing the mark, right? And, and just that one definition changed a lot in my head of how I look at things and started looking at things differently and, and reading about it. And, and let me jump in just yeah. as an example of this. So I just flew to a location I'm not going to disclose last weekend to work with a corporate consulting client. And I can't say anything because they would embarrass them to death, but <laughs> they have a name for this company and they chose it because it means a certain thing in Latin, a, a, you know, a, a positive benefit and it's expressed in Latin. Okay, great. Cause I wasn't, I was saying, are you sure you want to keep this name, this brand, you know, we could do a fresh canvas. Well, no, this means so much because this word in Latin means. To... So, you know, me, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to go Google translate and I'm going to check on this. <laughs> and it means nothing. It's a complete made up word. It's not a Latin word. <laughs> and the, so I got the, the, you know, the actual translation of Latin. And then I just double check Greek and, you know, Roman, every possible thing like, what am I missing here? And the answer is, it's like the guy who gets the Chinese character tattoo on his arm that he thinks means peace, but it says, fuck you. Or something. <laughs> it's like, so when I'm telling these people, you know, your entire corporate culture which you built on this latin word is not even latin <laughs> they're just blown away so it's the same with sin in the bible right it's just it's a meme everybody accepted the meme oh sin means bad guilty horrific yeah. you know all of those connotations 
And I just say, well, what language was the Bible written in? Oh, it was written in Aramaic. So let me check Aramaic and see what the definition of sin is. You know, it's, you know, I flew into, I was doing softball tournament in Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm going back to the airport and the sign says, welcome to the Birmingham International Airport. I say to the taxi guy, international? Who, who flies to Birmingham? From what country? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so I check in at the counter. Who, who, I don't know. She asked the lady next to her. She don't know. She asked the next guy. They don't know. They call a supervisor. He doesn't know. It takes nine people. Then I finally find out there's a code share flight from Atlanta to Birmingham on Delta, which is a code share with Aero Mexico. So that makes that it makes an international sense. flight and the Birmingham International Airport, right? It's just check the premise. Nobody yeah. checks the premise. I like to check the premise. <laughs> well, and, and you know, the past year I've been reading more. I read and I'm reading Taoism. And I'm reading a book now by uh, Jason Gregory, who I think is going to be interviewed for this podcast series. I did a call with him. He's got a series of books on Eastern philosophy. They're actually, they're wonderful. And he, um, he's Australian and uh, he lived in Thailand for, for years. And, and he's describing, he's got a book, his latest book is called Fasting the Mind. That when you start getting anxious and you start getting this, it's almost like to clear out the memes. The Fasting mind. Fasting the mind. Fasting the mind. The mind. Okay. The mind. So it's it's uh, it's traced back to Taoism of just it's meditation, but he, you know they have a I think it's called the vipassana where you ten days with nothing and you just you know, okay. but he's describing these these uh, these you know in Sanskrit and these op and, and it basically it's uh, I'm not going to repeat the Sanskrit words, but it's like your programming influences your thoughts, which influences your habits, which influ influences your actions and the results. Well, it's interesting because you're reading this and actions, the word for action in Sanskrit is karma. And he goes into the fact about how Western society has led you to believe karma is something akin to what we think sin is, which yeah. is knock on wood. I did something. I had a bad thought. Yes. And it kind of is, but it's more in terms of every action has ripples, right? I throw a, I throw a pebble and the pond has ripples, not you throw a pebble in the pond, they're going to ripple back to you and kill you and you're going to burn in hell. I mean, that's what we think of it as. Right. And it's this, it's, you, it dawns on you and you look at the history of, and I'm, I'm sure, well, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear if, uh, and maybe I'm thinking about the earlier version of your book too that I read <laughs> on the religion part. It'd be interesting to hear the, the feedback you get back from people who are on, on team, whatever, right. Who, who, who can't even, who can't discern, and you look at the history and the, the politicians getting in bed with the, the churches and creating the rules to keep people docile and doing certain things. And I always joke that, um, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, did the whole thing. You know, my dad went to Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame fan. We moved away from the church a couple of years ago. I was on my parish council, right? And... I always noticed that any time this current Pope would give an anti-market speech, there'd be a Vatican bank scandal. You know, it'd be interesting. Or pass the hat. Make you feel guilty and pass the hat. Notre Dame's 50 or $60,000 a year. That's not poor people, uh, you know, affording that. And so there's a variety of reasons that keeping people feeling guilty can, I think, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, contribute to fear and keep them from 
actually going out and being creative. I mean, but but this maybe that's a meme. There's other memes too. I mean, I talk to people, I want to start my own business, but so-and-so came and said, how could you do that? What are you going to do about health insurance? You're not going to have a health insurance card. You're not going to have this and this and this. And it's almost the same thing. It's like, well, I feel guilty. I'd be hurting my family. I'm selfish if I do that. If I go out and I live a creative life, is this... Is this, is this a planned thing? Is it just human nature in terms of creating this guilt? Is it, is it, is it well, people in cahoots? I believe it's turned into human nature because of memes, mm. that they have programmed enough people in the general population that that has become a frequent and common characteristic of human beings. I don't believe it was... See, I, I, I have this shocking... What I have identified, which what I think is the most shocking development in human history in the last 200, 300, 500 years, is that the human being today evolves more from mimetics, from mind viruses, than they do from genetic, from DNA, from genetic disposition. Yeah. So... If you sat down in a chair for 20 minutes with your phone turned off and just thought about that for 20 minutes, you would say, holy shit, I, this is the most mind-boggling, alarming, cataclysmic thing that nobody in the world is even seems to be thinking about. But now that Gage said that, if I really think about it, you know, in other words, we have thousands of years worth of program, hunter, gatherer, you know, survival of the fittest, the people who weren't smart enough to run away from saber toothed tigers didn't make the gene pool. They didn't make the cut. This is, you know, what we see today is the evolution of, you know, thousands of years of survival of the fittest and evolution. And then you say, and then, I don't even want to say names because that would be mean, but I mean, pick 15 public political figures, government, and say, this is the result of that yeah, 15,000 right. years since homo, homo, sapien, you know, um, because it's not what you see now is the result of 50 years of media amplifying mind viruses. So when, you know, if we started a meme in 1940, it might take six months to go around the world. Mm -hmm. We can start a meme in 2021 and we can have it around the world in 48 hours. Yeah. So when we, you know, when we watch America's Got Talent or American Idol or the Simon Cowell, you know, that's American Got Talent, you know, and all of the judges have their Dunkin' Donuts cups on their desks, you know, that's a meme. Dunkin' Donuts is paying a lot of money to create that meme. I love Blake Shelton and Blake is drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Well, no, that's probably not Dunkin' Donuts coffee that Blake Shelton is drinking. <laughs> right? There's probably a different explanation for that, right? But that's a meme that they we can create. And so 
10 million people watch that show and you know, 10 million more online or 50, that we can create a, a, a mean that goes, you know, if something happens real, you know, there is one of those moments in a presidential debate or a moment in a talent show like American Idol or Miss Universe or the Grammys or the Oscar, you know, Super Bowl, World Cup. How many people watch the World Cup? You know, a final, there might be 2 billion people on earth watching that in a hundred different languages. Um, and something happens on that pitch, it could create a meme and we could we could infect uh, 7 billion people or 5 billion people with a meme in 30 hours or 48 hours. You couldn't do that in the 30s and the 20s and the 1800s and the 1700s and in the BC days and the 100 AD days because we didn't have the platforms to amplify that stuff and weaponize that stuff. Yeah. Well, Randy, I want to thank you for doing this. I'm coming on. I know you've been on a few times before. Uh, you know, I don't know how I'm going to release this. I, I'm doing this podcast miniseries. You better and, not do all your chopping up and editing and take out all of these things that are going to frighten people talking politics. You better release this fucking thing from start to finish unedited because yeah. if you do, I think this will be one of the most fascinating, enlightening podcast that people could spend and we've been going a long time how long we've we been going a little over an hour yeah change yeah um yeah I, I you know i don't care what people you know it's like uh um someone might say oh you just you just gave your vaccination status i'm like I, yeah. people are gonna hate me they're gonna love me and i love everyone i mean i don't i don't you know it's not um i, I don't uh, you know, people probably, I mean, in your book, you probably get, I, I don't know if you get pushback from people who are on team, team religion or, or something who push back. Cause you're, you're pretty blunt about it. And, you know, I said some things here, I'm going to get, you know, my Catholic friends. Oh, could you say that? It's like, okay. I, I don't know what to say. That's my opinion. You know, it's, there, there came yes. a time when, when our daughter who's probably 13 at the time would come back with questions from mass or from Sunday school. And I could no longer justify my answers about it. Yeah. And, and part of that was a, not just the religion Jersey being taken off, right? The identity. It was the identity, the, the identity was, that you feel the need to defend. And it was political because I, Hey, for years I was in Republican land. Yeah. And so when it came to being a Catholic and marriage, there were certain things. And then I started going like, wait, what? How, I can't tell. I can no longer just, I can't justify this. And it was, I was speaking out of identity and, and all these things and the type of thing that like, you're going to go to hell. And it's still in the back of our head. I'll drive by a church and I'll be like, what if I'm wrong? Oh, I'm going to hell. And then I kind of sit back and I think, and I look at, I read a lot of Alan Watts now. And he, you know, he was a, he was a, uh, an Anglican minister. And he describes the history of why churches are the certain way and why they create it like an old uh, courtroom and the judge and why they've created the anthropomorphic God who judges you. And then, and then it's like, wait, maybe I should actually read the gospel. And, you know, Jesus wasn't killed because of his power. He was killed because he was a nonconformist and a conspiracy theorist. And everything he said was, your rules suck. Yeah. And yet somehow they twisted that into more rules. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, yeah no, the thing is, people, you know, what I hope I make uh, clear in the book, and I try really hard to do that, and I had some good feedback to do that from my friend Alan Weiss. I sent him an early proof, and he was like, I mean, he sent me back the most scathing email. Because him and I have that kind of relationship. Yeah. He said, absolutely, I will never endorse this book. This is a screed against religion. You know, there's, you know, you're doing exactly what you're accusing religion of. And he was absolutely right. And he, you know, to, in my defense, I, the religion chapter, he had the, the one I had just cut and pasted from my blog. It hadn't really been um, uh, sorted out where I was like, okay, listen, no. I just want you to, I, I didn't want to be judgmental about it. I, you know, yeah. I was very judgmental in my younger days. And so I had a track from an earlier blog that I had just cut and pasted that was very judgmental. And that didn't serve me. It doesn't serve the reader. And fortunately, I've evolved since then. And uh, I can present it in a much more rational, non-judgmental way. And so what I've tried to do in the book or my podcast is say, uh, I'm not because people think I'm like a um, I'm with I, I get people say we want you to take Christopher Hitchens place. The we had the four yeah. horsemen of the apocalypse, the, you know, Dawkins and Sam Harris and Hitchens and uh, Michael Shermer, I think, are the four uh, militant atheists, they're called. And I'm like, I'm not a militant atheist. I'm right. I call myself a fundamentalist agnostic. Yeah, because I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. But I question the sanity of people who think they do know things that they cannot know. I'm fine to have this place. So what I try to do in my work is say, it's just my job to get you to question the premise. And if you question the premise and you decide that you are a devout Christian or a devout Buddhist or a devout Muslim, wonderful. Right. And I've done my job. Yeah. And if you decide it's not serving you those beliefs, wonderful. Then I've done my job. But I don't have a, a dog in that fight. I don't have an axe yeah. to grind. I just want to, I, I want you to know, you know, are you, are you being controlled by a belief that you learned at six years old that you never questioned the premise? And yeah. is that influencing your job? work your health your marriage your everything yeah and if you if you want to if you want to test all of this out and the weaponization of guilt uh leave a religion that your family is very entrenched in leave a political party that you've worked in for decades and it was like i was letting i was killing myself my family uh letting the country down letting the world down and it's so interesting how if, if the things we talk about today, right? And certainly you, you, there's a way you can write about it and, and talk about it, right? But even if you just say, I left the Catholic church because of this, or I left its church because of this, people immediately, they have no problem judging. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not a two-way street. And, and, uh, and sometimes by just saying, I chose a different path, that becomes so threatening to them. Like we'll tell people, you know, we're traveling the country right now, right? We, we don't have a home. We, all our possessions fit in a minivan or a five foot uh, thing. And people ask us, what are you doing? We tell them and they said, they get defensive. Oh, well, I, I could do that if I would, but here's why I can't do it and this and that. And we're like, cool. 
we didn't we didn't say you had to do it you know homeschooling uh, they immediately feel guilty well that's wonderful you know i would homeschool but we we both uh, and i'm like that's cool i didn't or i left the catholic church well uh, i didn't i'm not judging man you're you know it's like but that you can tell it's that identity and there's a layer of guilt there that they're doing something i want to do and i feel so i'm going to justify it while i'm done it it's like if you feel the need to get defensive maybe maybe investigate that a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever you, you see emotion driving that, you know, why, why does every alcoholic demand you drink with them? Because right? mm. they don't want to acknowledge their alcoholism. So they, if you just say, oh, no, thanks, but I don't drink. I mean, it's like you're drowning kittens in front of little children. They attack you for not having a drink with them, right? It's yeah. somebody who quits smoking. They're going to, you know, become evangelical. Well, no, you don't really, you know, why is that? Why do you have those emotional triggers that you feel the need to? And it isn't, there were two great examples you gave. One was leaving a religion, one was leaving a political party. But it's like I talk about in the book, um, if, you know, how many people are dentists because their father was a dentist, their grandfather was a dentist and their great-grandfather. And they never took three minutes to think about would I rather be a painter or a dancer or an accountant? It just never even entered their mind. And so the I called the book Radical Rebirth because I, in my case, as probably five or six times in my life, I have killed off the old version of myself hmm. and created a rebirth. And I give myself permission to do that. And that's what I think everybody has to do. You know, people's like, I was in your seminar in 1996 and you said the opposite of that. I'm like, great. You know, that's the thing about the mind. If you don't change it once in a while, you're probably not using it, you know? Yeah. So I, I, if, if you tell me that I'm saying exactly the same thing I said in 1996 in my seminar, in my book, then I've got a serious problem. <laughs> You know, what, what am I still doing on this planet? Because all I'm doing is taking up space. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm amazed how ignorant I was three weeks ago. Right? <laughs> I'm just, you know, as I, like now, as I'm doing this deep dive into crypto and web, you know, I'm like, oh, my God. Because I, I could spend a couple hours a day on this. And, you know, a couple hours a day after three weeks you've gained a lot of knowledge, okay? That's the equivalent of six months of a college course in something. Um, so that's what the journey of life is all about. It's, it's, it's growing into the highest possible version of yourself. And you can't do that if, you know, the, the reason why, so, you know, people say to me all the time, how do you come up with these ideas, you know? Joe Vitale accused me of being an alien. He said, you have to be from another planet. How do you even think of this stuff, you know? And Lornette wrote me the other day, uh, and she's my assistant. She yeah, said, I met her last year. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know Lornette. So she wrote me an email the other day after she read my Friday philosophy. And she's like, you know, there's a lot of people who tell me that you are an alien because you just talk about stuff that nobody else in the world ever talks about. And um, it's, and I think, so people say to me, 
how, how do you get these ideas? How do you come up with these ideas? And I think the reason so many people can't have new ideas is because they can't let go of the existing ones they have. They can't mm. let go of them. So they have the idea that they're a Democrat or they're a Republican or they're a Buddhist or they're a Bitcoin enthusiast or they're a whatever. They created that label. They've got the identity. They've got to defend the identity. And that's like it sucks all the oxygen out of the room for any other ideas, any other beliefs, any other, you know, evolution of you as a person. And that's what we all have to fight against because it's entropy is a real dynamic. You know, the, there's a reason it's called the comfort zone, right? It is comfortable, right? But nobody on earth ever had a breakthrough in their comfort zone and you won't be the first, right? yeah. you know, we're only going to have our breakthroughs when we challenge ourselves. And that means challenging our core foundational beliefs, questioning the premise, just like I did, like, okay, so what language is the Bible written in? Let me check that language. Oh, they yeah. say this means that in Latin? Let me just check the translation. You know, because could, you know, and, and, and this is not a mom and pop company doing $50,000. This is a international company doing many, many millions of dollars in sales. And their whole—I don't even want to say anymore. I'm gonna—I'm gonna get in trouble. <laughs> that happens. People just accept the like the karma thing or the sin yeah. thing. They just, hey, this is you know, this is how it was. This is how the idea was presented to me, and I've never questioned it. Why would I? Everybody yeah. says it. Everybody says it's true. That's the way everybody does, it. right? And that's why. Uber was started by people who were not in the taxi business. Amazon was started by people who were not in the bookstore business. Airbnb was started by people who were not in the hotel business. And this is going to, if you look through all of the breakthrough entrepreneurial things, breakthrough medical, scientific things, and nine times out of 10, you see it's from people outside the space because they don't have that incestuous thinking that's so prevalent within the space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope today's episode caused people to question a lot of things. We may get some interesting questions uh, <laughs> once I release this, but Randy, uh, you can find all of Randy's daily blog posts. How, how long have you been doing daily blog posts for? Well, I just, now I'm at the point I do them when I have something to say. Okay. So okay. It could be five a week. It could be one a week. One a week, but randygage.com. Um, it's great. Follow him on Twitter. He's, he's a prolific tweeter. He, I was off Twitter, but, uh, I don't know if I told you this, but I got back on based on our I discussion see. on the podcast. Oh, okay. And, yeah, cause I saw you came on shortly after that. Back yeah. After. Just in terms of, I'm going to use it. I'm going to use them like they use me. The interesting thing though, was even though I had right before a discussion, I went off it, but I, before I went off it, I had deleted all my followers. It, yeah, they still delivered me stuff as if I hadn't deleted my followers. Really? So now leaving it and coming back on, it's really a blank slate. I mean, they would deliver me promoted stuff or things you should know that were based on old habits, yeah. I guess, or people. So now it's a blank slate. 
I'm following me, people. Twitter knows more about you than your wife does. Yes. Yes. And now Amazon, I think too, that, that, yes. it's getting there, but, uh, well, Randy, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Hey, this was a great, fascinating discussion. Um, I agree. Bringing me on. Hey, thanks for listening to the power prosperity podcast. Do me a favor and practice the circulation law of prosperity and tell people about prosperity TV. So if you would, just put something up on your Tumblr, your Twitter, your Facebook, your YouTube. Uh, let people know what you think of the Power of Prosperity podcast. Even take a screenshot of your phone and maybe post that picture uh, so we can build the community here at the podcast. Thanks, guys.